Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Imagine how that could be daring. You can't say that at Disney World because it's a magical fantasy land where you can blur yourself into any gender you desire. Uh, but hey, in Canada today, did you hear this? The Girl Guides, their Girl Scouts, have announced they're dropping the word brownies for their young girls, since that just sounds too racial. <laughs> this makes about as much sense as dropping the term brownies because it might suggest the girls are sweet targets for cannibals. Uh, so I'm in the car in my ritual punishment of listening to national public radio. And they're reviewing a movie called Bones and All about two young cannibals in love with Timothy Chalamet. How romantic. And then you're listening to this thing and movie crit critic Bob Mondello just throws this in there. Uh, Camille DeAngelis set her novel near the end of the Reagan era when cannibalism could serve as an apt metaphor for American excess. Now this is what bothers me, that NPR is forever painted as this oasis of soft-spoken civility and human decency, and yet it's just so fun to connect cannibalism to Reagan-era excess. So election season is over. So now it's apparently safe for the Obamas to come out of their mansions and be worshipped. Barack Obama descended into the Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And naturally, they were doing this to discuss his foundation's democracy forum, which is going to engage deeply in the mysteries of misinformation. Now, Trevor Noah, who confessed back in the day that his brain froze in adoration the first time he interviewed the almighty Barack, he asked the former president about why our American discourse has become so toxic. When, when you look at the discourse in the country as well, and, and, and around the world, but again, I think you're correct in that America is a leader in what's happening right now. The discourse has become so toxic. Yeah. And I wonder what you make of that. Where, where, where do you think it's coming from? Do you think it's social media? Do you think it's the tenor of politicians in the capital? Obama then goes on this tale about campaigning in Illinois. And, you know, southern Illinois is the south. As in, it's too white. It's too rural. It's too conservative. It might as well be the Confederate States. Then he says to Trevor, well, there are more Trevors there than Barack's. And Trevor laughs like Barack Obama is the funniest human being he's ever come across. This is life as an Obama. People treat you as the most special sample of humanity you could possibly find. So Obama was recalling this Senate campaign. And after explaining to the young people in the audience about what a map was, he was recalling the good old days. Now this, if we're talking about his first race for the U.S. Senate, 
It's 2006. Fox News and MSNBC are 10 years old at this point. But he's going to pretend this is somehow pre-Fox. Now, he can say it's pre-Twitter. It's pre-Facebook was a thing. And that it was in September of 2006 when you could first just hop on and join Facebook with a valid email address. Most of us joined after that. Facebook and Twitter expanded dramatically during the Obama years, and they were touted in the Obama years because they were wonderful vehicles for the Obama campaign to mobilize the young voters, don't you see? It's only when those evil Republican people started counter-mobilizing that's when suddenly the era of toxic misinformation began. Here's how Obama summarized I could go to a diner or a VFW hall or a, a county fair. I could go to the local newspaper, and the owner there is conservative, and he's got a bow tie and buzz cut. He's kind of skeptical about my ideas. But there wasn't the filter that had been created by Fox News or the media infrastructure, the, the sort of right-wing conspiracy theory uh, you know, folks. And so they came at me with an open mind and I could, I could listen to them and they could listen to me. And that at the end of the day, they might say, well, he's a little liberal for our taste, but we have something in common. Mm -hmm. He talked about, you know, his mom getting sick. I remember my mom getting sick. You know, it seems like he loves his kids. I love my kids. Mm -hmm. There was some sense of connection. And I think the filter now has become so thick it started, I think, with Fox News and some of the other uh, uh, you know, traditional media. And now with social media, that's gotten turbocharged. Turbocharged. Oh, yes. Everything went to heck when Barack Obama left the presidency. Or maybe when the campaign began, Donald Trump came down the escalator. That was the beginning of the end. So now in today's day and age, there are what he called preconceptions about Obama and the left. These make it hard for them to penetrate. There are too many stereotypes. And Obama will complain about this filter that we have these silos of opinion where the conservative folks with their crew cuts and their bow ties. <laughs> and gee, that's not a cutesy stereotype. Mind your own filter there, hipster. They, they, he, these guys can't seem to address that they're in a silo, that they don't listen, that they dehumanize the opponent. And maybe we could suggest that it might be a little rude to suggest that cannibalism is a metaphor that fits our capitalist politics. Then there's Michelle Obama. She has a new book out. It's called The Light We Carry. I can't decide. Is she trying to be Oprah? Oprah loves Michelle. Michelle loves Oprah. Which one is trying to be the other one? Well, uh, I did a column on the New York Times. The book review in the New York Times was something else. I mean, Ben Shapiro tweeted, the most sycophantic book review ever written. Ed Morrissey tweeted back to Shapiro, the secret to success in life 
find someone who loves you as unconditionally and fiercely as the mainstream media loves the Obamas. Except here at the Media Research Center, we are told, do not call them the mainstream media. They're the not the mainstream. They may be the lamestream. They're the left stream. They ain't the mainstream. Well, or they're the democratic stream. I mean, that's really what they are. And so, you know, maybe if the, you know, we have now a very bifurcated politics. The Republicans didn't get as much of a wave. The Democratic media had some success in holding on to some Democrats. But let's know where they are. They belong to the Democrats. So the book reviewer in the New York Times, her name is Judith Newman. She is the help desk columnist. I mean, you just go to her Twitter page if you want to see where Judith Newman is coming from. She's retweeting Hillary. She's retweeting praise for John Fetterman, social media producer. She's just unembarrassing or unembarrassed to be uh, just another Democrat Party tweeter. And that's the way she approached this book review. This is what Ben Shapiro quoted. She is on a journey, Michelle Obama. Through her stories, experiences, and thoughts, we're finding the light with her. Lucky us. <laughs> Lucky us. Well, naturally, Michelle's publishers tweeted out this quote, and then Judith Newman retweeted the publisher. It's so funny. Lucky us, and then there was lucky them. Newman added, The fact she loves lowbrow TV and counts the hilarious but racy Ali Wong among her favorite comedians says the world about who Obama is when she gets together with those friends. Lucky them. I mean, the first line in the whole review is, It's not easy being Michelle Obama. Fabulous, yes. Easy, no. Oh, yes. It's so tough being an adored multi-multi-millionaire adored and worshipped. I mean, let's say something. Like, can we just put this down? One of the reasons you can know we have a Democrat news media is they strike book deals and we never know what the, to- what the total is. But, you know, I think we can believe that it's in the tens of millions. They struck a deal, a production deal with Netflix for an estimated $50 million. All right, so these people are in the nine figures of income on these deals after they came out of the presidency. Now, you scratch a liberal about this, they're going to say, well, they earn it because these books sell. There's no doubt about that. The Obama books sell because people adore them, and every time they have a product that they want to hawk, The news media comes out and says, oh, it's just the best thing ever. When Barack Obama's memoir came out right after the election two years ago, see the way this happens? Very carefully scheduled Obama moments after the election is over. The New York Times book review then was by this Nigerian feminist author, novelist, Chimamande Adichie. And she writes, Barack Obama is as fine a writer as they come. The book, A Promised Land, is nearly always pleasurable to read, sentence by sentence, 
The prose gorgeous in places. The detail granular and vivid. And naturally, the publishers of Barack Obama's book put that in all their promotional materials. You see, the New York Times, very helpful to help the Obamas sell their books. And then they'll put them in their top, top 100 books of the year because the Obamas are historic figures. And it doesn't matter if the book is crap. I haven't bought them. I haven't read them. I don't know if they're crap. I'm just saying it doesn't really seem to matter. I do know, yes, with Obama's dreams from my father, they adored the prose in that thing. It didn't matter if it was half fictional. When you love Obama, it doesn't matter whether he tells the truth or not. It's all just, oh, it just makes your brain freeze if you're Trevor Noah. Now, when it comes to the Trump family, I think we all understand there's going to be a different sound to the New York Times book reviews, but... <laughs> the contrast is rather dramatic. I was happy I sort of had these things lying around. Uh, a few years ago, Ivanka Trump assembled a motivational book, much like Michelle Obama. The Times assigned the review to someone named Jessa Crispin. Her Twitter account is called The Book Slut. Yes, Jessa Crispin was not nice to Ivanka Trump. She said the book reads more like the scrambled Tumblr feed of a demented 12-year-old who just checked out a copy of Bartlett's familiar quotations from the library. A demented 12-year-old. Crispin then went on Twitter and said, The New York Times forced me to read the Ivanka book. Which cleanse is best for toxins in the brain? Now, just three months ago, Ivanka Trump's husband, Jared Kushner, came out with his White House memoir. Veteran New York Times book review, Dwight Garner, had some words. He said the book was earnest and soulless. Kushner looks like a mannequin and he writes like one. All right, so let's match that. Obama's prose, granular, vivid, gorgeous. Jared Kushner writes like a mannequin. But this line really stuck out to me. Dwight Garner. Reading this book reminded me of watching a cat lick a dog's eye goo. <laughs> what? Huh? You know, my whole point is that, the, look, the New York Times was writing the book reviews of the Trump books like it was performing for a left-wing audience. And that's then they turn around and they adore everything the Obama writes, the Obamas write, because it's they're writing for a left-wing audience. Then there's People Magazine. Now, I used to, in the Obama era, quite routinely write for Newsbusters on the gush in People Magazine, the political gush. Now... Once the Trumps came, People Magazine basically, instead of writing nasty articles about the Trumps, they just dropped out of politics for the most part. But they're back when Michelle Obama wants. The November 21 issue of People, Chris Evans is the sexiest man alive. But right above that, Michelle Obama, her grownish girls, and empty nesting with Barack. 
Okay, so then you turn to the middle of the magazine, and the headline here is Michelle Obama, honest and vulnerable, the only way I know how to be. Barf. The uh, the uh, questioner here, if you want to call her that, the facilitator here is the usual one. Her name is Sandra Soberai Westfall. Sandra used to work for the Associated Press. Now she works for the Obamas. I mean, she works for People Magazine, but when you read these sorts of things, it really sounds like she's writing for the Obamas. These articles, um, they're always... Uh, totally designed to promote the Obamas as the finest humans we could possibly know. Let's just cut this passage from the Michelle Obama interview. I won't sicken you with the whole thing. People. I told a friend that you write about your anxieties, and she was incredulous, like, but she's Michelle freaking Obama. Why show your vulnerability? Yes, that is considered a question. And then Michelle was allowed to answer. I started this book in the early months of COVID. We were all at home watching what felt like our world unraveling, the death tolls mounting, violence, healthcare system crushed, the insurrection, all of it. I found myself struggling to stay hopeful. At the same time, I was getting letters from around the country, searching for answers on how to cope. And for some reason, they were asking me, what do you do? Over the 58 years I've lived, I can look back and say, this is how I deal with fear. This is how I stay visible in a world that doesn't necessarily see a tall black woman. This is how I stay armored up when I'm attacked. The book is that offering. That's the only way I know how to be honest about myself and trying to stay vulnerable. So yeah, I'm freaking Michelle Obama. But we all have anxiety. We all have fear. She's so relatable. You know, that's what you're supposed to think. We've got a black and white picture of Michelle Obama knitting. She knits scarves, pillows, and hats. Then over on the other page, the ongoing miracle of marriage to Barack. This is an excerpt. Let's give you a paragraph about Barack and Michelle. She writes, Our love is not perfect, but it's real, and we're committed to it. This particular certainty sits parked like a grand piano in the middle of every room we enter. Now that I like. Now, look, don't tell me you think the Obamas write every word of this. All right? Maybe you don't have a ghostwriter, but you have a nice word shaper. But that's nice. I mean, I think when you get to a certain age in life, when you're in your late 50s and your kids are grown, the whole idea that your love is, your marriage is a grand piano in the middle of the room, that's very nice. I can take that. You know, when you have great adult kids who help you sound good on a podcast. (laughs) Then there's National Public Radio. We're going to get back to NPR. Uh, I noticed she was interviewed by NPR. So I put the words Michelle Obama in the NPR.org website search engine just for the last seven days. And it gave me 11 results over the last seven days. You know, most of them about her interview. 
NPR had a 34-minute interview with Michelle Obama, which they have sliced and diced and used all over their so-called news shows, and apparently on the podcast they call Life Kit. There's so much advice guru stuff, so let's just get to the politics, because this is where we live and call out the leftist agenda of taxpayer-funded radio. The interviewer is Juana Summers, also a woman of color, who came over to NPR from Politico. In this segment, Juana Summers discusses Michelle saying, we go high, and then Michelle, sadly, feels like she's misunderstood by all the young, woke hotheads. You mentioned earlier the call to action that many of us know you for. When they go low, we mm-hmm. go high. And in a past life before I had this job, I was a political correspondent talking to young people in particular. And what I heard a lot, and I'm sure you hear this too from the people who write you letters or come to events that you hold, they feel a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they express that they feel a sense of rage given all of the hurt and harm and marginalization, the insurrection, attacks on LGBTQ rights, anti-Semitism. How does going high square with the urgency that so many people feel, especially young people feel in this moment? Well, that's the interesting thing because some young people interpret going high as being complacent. Mm. Going high doesn't mean sitting on the side of the road and watching, you know, injustice go by. Going high is about having a strategy, a real concrete strategy for change. It's taking the rage and turning it into reason. And it will never feel like enough because until everything is perfect, it will always be urgent. But in the meantime, what I urge young people to do is be rageful and own it, but have a plan, have a strategy that can work. Can you see or hear the disconnect in all of this? Let's go high and be full of rage. (laughs) Don't tell me Michelle Obama's not a politician, that she's not trying to be all things to all people. I mean, on one level, she's trying to say, I'm a guru of going high because that's my brand right now. But hey, go ahead and dip into rage if you can make it effective. It's sort of like NPR. We're civil, we're decent, and we promote the book in defense of looting. NPR, in one of its promotional materials, noted what Michelle wrote further about this motto. She wrote, given my motto, when they go low, we go high, a lot of people these days have been struggling to figure out how to stay high when it feels like the world is in a low place. And so this book is my best attempt at offering people at least a look into my toolbox, the practices and habits, the people who keep me balanced. Do we have enough life-work balance? I mean, for me, I would say no. I'm a junkie. I'm a workaholic. But it's easier to have balance in your life when you have gazillions of dollars and several mansions and the media is ready to promote you whenever you desire. It's a very lovely thing to be an Obama and have the media at your feet. I mean, literally at your feet. Michelle Obama can wear glittery Balenciaga boots and they're all like, oh, the boots. May we lick them? Oh, I tell you, 
Uh, it's that season. We had a disappointing election, and then we had this whole disappointing pile of Obama gunk. It's there. We'll identify it for you. We can all sort of carefully steer around it, but that's why you come to Newsbusters once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening.